The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Well, today we are in part three of our series called Faith and Logic. And so glad that you are here. Those of you joining us live online, thank you for joining us. We believe you are part of our church. Hope you feel part of our church. And of course, at our pilot campus, love you guys. Glad that you are joining us. And so in this Faith and Logic series, we do a series like this from time to time. And our conviction about doing series like this is that we believe as a church that the one who created all the universe in his, his brilliance the one who created our minds and gave us the capacity to think, we believe that God does not want us to just put our brains on the shelf when it comes to pursuing after him. He wants us to ask the tough questions. He wants us to be thinking a rational people. He wants us to be using the, the logic and the capacity for logic that he's given us. In other words, we believe that faith and logic are not at odds with each other, in fact, they work really well together. And that what God wants is for us to pursue him with all of our minds. And that's actually going to just fuel and give us opportunity for faith. And that we can be deeply thinking, cerebral people, but we can also be people of deep faith. And so what we're doing through this series is squaring up to some of the greatest challenges or greatest uh, questions that are posed towards the Christian faith. And so uh, we're gonna jump in today um, and we got a lot of ground to cover, so you got to be ready. I hope you, are, you, are your minds ready? You guys ready for this? All right, so get, get out something you're going to want to take notes. And um, as we're going through this, i got a couple things I want you to write down. And, um, but let me just begin with a word of prayer, and then we will jump into part three. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, we're coming here before you today, and you know all of us have just a diversity of, of different backgrounds. Lord, you know, we're all coming from all kinds of different places, different places spiritually, um, different life experiences, different circumstances swirling in our lives right now. But God, I ask that you would do that miracle where you will just tailor for each one of us what we need to hear. Because God, this is so much more than just going to church. We're here to meet with you, Jesus draw closer to you, draw strength from you. And so would you, as we're seeking you, would, would, would we be found by you? Would you draw us in deeper today? Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I would bet almost every single one of us at some point in our lives have had that moment where you just say, it, it just maybe something difficult happens and you just wanna say, oh, are, you, are you serious? Now, why does that have to happen? Why? And maybe you've had that moment. We can say that about big things. We can even say that about small things. We have, that's kind of just an impulse that we ask. I recently had a situation like that happen to me um, a few months ago. And honestly, it was, uh, in all honesty, cl closer to one of those small things, especially in the scheme of all that's happening in the world. Uh, but here's what happened. I was on vacation, Rebecca and I, um, and the three kids uh, getting away for a weekend, we were uh, staying uh, down by the beach, and just, I, I was in that, like, vacation high, you know, like, 
just kind of decompressed, you know, relaxing, having fun, and just, it was, we were having a great time. And we took the kids out to dinner, all, all of us went out to dinner one night, and um, because it was vacation, we decided to kind of stretch the kids. We stayed out a little later than we usually do, so we're kind of stretching their bedtime, which means, because of the age of our kids, like, at any moment, there could be a total meltdown, okay? And we're just kind of riding that risky line there, all right? And so um, we we're on our way back to the place that we were staying, and Rebecca and I were talking. We're like, oh, we just, there's just one errand we need to do. We're like, I know that the, we're stretching the kids, uh, you know, but what if we just pull through the shopping center? Rebecca's like, you just keep the car running. I'll jump out, run into the grocery store. I'll come back out. You pick me up, and, and it'll be fine. Let's risk it, okay? So I'm like, all right. So we, we pull into the shopping center, Rebecca jumps out, I kind of start circling, finally I kind of pull down a, an aisle and I find this one parking space that I can pull in and I can be watching like a hawk, you know, like ready for her to walk out, you know, and that split second, you know, I'm like the transporter, like swoop in, Rebecca jumps in the car, all right, and so anyway, I'm parked there, I see Rebecca walk out and um, I put the, the van in reverse and I'm backing out and as I'm backing out, someone else starts backing out and backs into the side of my van. And I'm like, oh, man, like, this is now going to take a long time. We, you know, this person pulls back in their spot. I pull all the way back in my spot. I'm like, oh, now we got to figure this out. we got to talk to insurances, and it's just going to be a, a crazy thing. I'm, just, I'm glad everyone was okay, but I'm like, what a hassle. So we get out. I talk to this person. Fortunately, they were very kind and civil. We had just a fine conversation. They're on the phone with their insurance company. I'm on the phone with my insurance company. And while I'm talking to the insurance, okay, someone else backs out and they back into my car. I'm like, you, what? Like two people in 20 minutes. This is crazy. And, and all the insurance company hears over the phone, they just hear me say, you have got to be kidding me. This is ridiculous, okay? And then I'm now dealing with this. I've got two accidents. You know, my kids are like wide-eyed at this trauma they've just witnessed, okay? <laughs> so I say, I, we get back in the car. We work it all out. You know, the kids are like really on the line at this point. And, um, you know, my, my sweet Rebecca is trying to calm me down because there's three sets of eyeballs in the back seat, you know, watching me. And so here's the thing, I got to tell you, like, my vacation buzz, like, plummeted at that point. And I'm just driving, I'm like, Kai, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is crazy. Like, why does that have to happen on vacation? Well, why does it have to happen? But even on vacation, like, this is terrible, why? And, and what hits me, just kind of thinking back on that situation, is anytime something difficult happens, and it might be like a smaller thing like, like that situation, but it could also be a bigger thing. And any time that situation happens, so often our impulse is to be like, why? And when we ask why, we're, we're asking a question that's, that's searching after what purpose could this difficulty possibly serve? We're saying like, what could possibly be the meaning of this difficulty? Why does it have to happen? When our impulse to ask why, when we have that impulse, that is a search for meaning in that difficulty. You tracking with me? All right, I want you just to take that concept and I want you to just uh, park it for a second. We're gonna come back to it. Today, what we're walking through is what is commonly known as the greatest logical challenge posed against the Christian faith. It's often said it's the greatest challenge posed against the Christian faith. 
It's what's often called the problem of evil. In essence, it's when maybe you've heard someone say this or maybe you've felt this before. It's where you say, man, I, I just struggle to believe in God because there's so much suffering and evil in the world. Why hasn't he done something about it? And so this is often called the, the greatest challenge. And so we want to square up to a challenge like this. So we're going to do this a little bit differently. I, I want to build, before we jump into this key text we're going to look at, I want to just peel back the layers because this is a layered uh, discussion. I want to peel back some of the logical layers and get to what is really the profound question. It's a good question. It's a profound question that this passage we're going to look at has an answer for. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go ahead and open to Jeremiah 17 in your Bible or your Bible app. Just open to that. Stay there. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. And I want to walk through this, the logic and kind of get a running start here um, for, for this particular issue. Okay? Here's how the problem of evil is typically logically laid out. It starts with God. There are a few things that the Bible declares and, and claims about God. First, the Bible claims that God is good. Now, that might not seem like super profound. You're like, yeah, you know, of course the Bible says that, that God is good. But that's actually not something that every religion claims. Think back on what you know and remember learning about the ancient Greek and uh, Roman pantheon, the, the ancient gods of, of paganism. What you, if what you remember about that, these gods, there never was a claim that they were good. In fact, they were jealous of each other. They were rivals with each other. They were treacherous with each other. They were murderous towards each other. They lied to each other. Like, it was never the claim that they were good. But the Bible declares that God is perfectly good, defines good, constantly good. No evil is in God. In fact, if you're taking notes, um, the theological term for this is his omnibenevolence. It's his perfect goodness. He's holy. He is perfectly good. The second thing, there's many things it claims about God, but two things pertinent for our discussion. The second thing that the Bible talks about regarding God is his power. The Bible declares that God is all-powerful. He's almighty. It's sometimes the theological term is his omnipotence. He is perfect in power. And so then, the, then we have to deal with this situation of evil. So let's write evil over here. Because we got to see how these play together. Now, now here's how the problem of evil plays itself out. If God is perfectly good, thoroughly good, then he will logically oppose evil. He doesn't want it because he's good. He doesn't want it. He opposes it. He wants it gone. If he's all-powerful, then he has the power to remove evil. And he would then leverage that power, because he doesn't like it, he would leverage that power to oppose evil. So now we've got to ask the question is, is there evil in this world? Now, I think there's evidence of evil in this world. There's root canals. Light mayonnaise, Tom Brady, all kinds of things out there, okay? Evidences of evil in this world, all right? I think there's, there are things that show evil, okay? But let's just crank it up a notch. Not just the things that, are our, that go against our preferences, but let's just take it up a notch, okay? There are things that I believe that we would say 
that is definitively wicked and evil. Like categorically, not a preference, that is evil. Hitler. Oppression and racism. Sex trafficking. Like I I would think most of us would say, man, that's just sheer evil. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to just, I want to take a poll, okay? And I'm going to ask you to raise your hands, whether you're here, Pilot Campus, if you're watching online, we'll know, okay? Uh, We'll know, all right? So here's what I want you to do. If you believe that there is evil in this world, I I want you to go ahead and raise your hand. If you believe there's evil in this world. I I believe there's evil in this world. I think it looks like all of us do, okay? Or the vast majority So we can say there is evil in this world. So then the logical problem is stated like this. Okay, if there is evil in this world, then it must mean that God is either not all powerful, maybe he's left evil because he doesn't have the power to eradicate it, to remove it. Or it must mean that God is not good. Maybe he doesn't oppose evil, maybe he's neutral. Or maybe he's sometimes good, sometimes evil. And so what's said is that the presence of evil is evidence that there is not a God. Because once you take goodness or all perfect goodness or all powerfulness away from God, then the biblical description of God breaks down. And so that's what's leveraged or leveled as a logical problem against Christianity. But here's what I want to just start with this, this first point here. I believe that there's a logical flaw in this. And it goes something like this. The moment you say that God is big enough to be responsible for evil, to be blamed for the presence of evil, you are simultaneously admitting that God is big enough to have a reason for allowing it that might be a good reason, but we just can't comprehend it. What do I mean by that? Well, let me just illustrate it like this. Uh, Rebecca and I, um, used to have a cat. Also evidence of evil in this world, okay? We used to have a cat. Now, we got him when he was a kitten, which is great. I mean, who doesn't love a kitten? But the problem with kittens is they become cats, okay? And so we had this cat, and being a good pet owner, if those of you who have pets, being a good pet owner means you take them to the vet, okay? And some pets are fine with the vet. Like, if you have something weird like an iguana or something like that, like, they don't care about going to the vet. A lot of dogs are fine with going to the vet. The vast majority of cats, when it's time to take them to the vet, they are convinced that this is a premeditated torture operation towards them. It is sheer wickedness and evil. And so when I would take, have to take my cat to the vet, I would sneak into another room, I would tilt up the cat carrier, open the lid, go find my cat, being all nice. I'd lift him up where he couldn't see the cat carrier, throw him in the cat carrier and close the door. And then promptly I'd lock it and inside are all kinds of weird noises, okay? There's sounds, there's fur everywhere. He's doing laps inside this tiny cat here trying to find a way out. He is convinced that I am trying to torture him. And frankly, his experience once he gets to the vet only confirms that assumption. He's being poked and prodded and injected, okay? And so he's like, "That's I knew this was going to happen. This is exactly what I knew. You're torturing me. I'd bring him home. I'd open the cat carrier. He's all fluffy. He'd low crawl under the couch and stay there for a couple days. And now I have a relational problem with my cat 
that I have to rebuild. Okay, he is convinced that that is sheer evil. He cannot comprehend what possible good could come of that. Now, it doesn't matter how much I try to explain to my cat, look, buddy, I know this is tough, all right? I go to the doctor too, but I mean, here's the thing. Like, there's things called diseases and germs, and you know those fleas? This is actually helping with those fleas. It doesn't matter how much I might try to explain it to him. He cannot understand. And it's not that I'm not doing a good job explaining it. He does not have the capacity to compute it. So <clears throat> we have that life experience um, that we've witnessed. It's the same if you have children or grandchildren. You know there are moments when you say, look, I, I know that you don't like this. I know this is difficult for you, but this is actually a good thing. And maybe you'll understand when you're older. And you know that in this moment, they don't have the capacity to see how this difficult thing is good. We have experienced that dynamic. So logically, isn't it possible, if, I, if that dynamic can be true between myself and my cat, and I'd like to think that my intellect is a little higher than my cat, but God's intellect is infinitely higher than mine, isn't it then logically possible that he has a reason for good for allowing what seems like sheer evil that we just can't comprehend. Here's how I want you to write it down. If you're taking notes, um, write it down like this. Um, the, the first one. If God is big enough to blame for evil, he is big enough to have a reason for it that we cannot comprehend. I do not believe that even though this is often stated as the number one reason that people say, that's why I'm not a Christian, and, and they might say that's the, that's the main reason, so, so often it's stated, but I do not believe that this is a logical problem. It is a relational problem, though. Because often we go through difficult things and we say, yeah, God, that's fine. I'm sure you got a good reason, but why have you done this to me? And there's oftentimes we have to repair that relationship. Today we're dealing with the logical side of it. Next week, I want to encourage you to be here next weekend because we're going to deal with the relational side of the difficulties that we walk through because that's a real thing. This is not evidence, evil is not evidence that God does not exist. I might argue, and others have argued, the presence of evil is actually evidence that God does exist. Because think of it like this. If you are operating in a system where there is no God, an atheistic system, where you believe that this universe was just an accident, it was an explosion, and all this order and design is really just random, random processes, then that means there's no meaning. It's just an accident. There's no actual meaning we can assign to things. It's just processes. And if there's no meaning, then we, I go back to what we talked about at the very beginning. We have this impulse to say, why? Like, God, why are you allowing this? That impulse, I believe, is deep down our reflex that we know there is meaning in this life. It's not all random. We're asking, why would you allow this? Because if there is no God then that means that this is all an accident and there is no meaning, which means that there is nothing really that we can call categorically evil. We might, it might be against our preferences. A few moments ago, we polled and we all believe that you can see evidence of evil, not just something that I don't like, something that is wrong. But without God, and if everything's meaningless, then we'd approach something like Hitler and we'd say, 
well, that's just not the type of ruler I would prefer. So here's the second thing I want you to write down. I want you to think of it like this. If there is no God, then there is no meaning. So then there, there is no such thing as evil. There's no God. All of this is an accident. Then really evil is just something that we're making up. It's just about our preferences. It's not categorically evil. Okay. Now we get to this profound question that this passage answers. Okay. If God is all good and he opposes evil, which he does, if he is all powerful and he has the capacity to get rid of evil, which he does, then why is there evil? Does the Bible talk about what his good reason for allowing it is? Like, why doesn't God just snap his fingers and make all evil go, go away? Doesn't he have the power to do that? He does. Does the Bible answer that question? That's a good question. It does answer that question. I want you to open to Jeremiah 17. We're going to briefly work through this. 17.1 says this. The sin of Judah, that's God's people, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their, what's that word there? On the tablet of their heart. I want you to look at this description. We're, I'm going to move on here to the, to the next verse, but I just want to stop on this description. It's describing the heart as, a, as if it was a tablet of stone. So this is the metaphor. If the heart is a stone tablet, sin or evil, like wickedness, is written on our hearts, engraved on our hearts. But did you notice the instrument? It's very descriptive language. The instrument that's engraving it is a pen of iron, with a tip of diamond. Probably the hardest substances they could come up with in ancient times, in this time period. In other words, sin and evil is not just kind of scratched on our hearts. It is engraved down deep. This is what it's saying. It's engraved down deep on our hearts. Hold on to that. Let's go to verse five. Jump down to verse five. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Now watch what he, he does the exact opposite and contrasts it with this. Look at this. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. He's contrasting two things here. Look at what he says. This is, I think this is profound. God is saying there's essentially two different ways you can run your life. On one hand, you can trust in man. In other words, trust in yourself. You can say, I'm going to live my way. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, you know, follow my dreams, my passion, my ideals. I'm going to do my life my way. I can put myself on the throne. Or it says you can put God on the throne and trust in God. It says, do things God's way, surrender to God, but make him actually your Lord. What's the contrast? Either I can be my own little God or God can be my God. 
but it warns us what, what, what happens. The path where I choose to put myself on the throne and do my own thing is a path that's described as being like a shrub. Did you see this? A shrub in the desert. In other words, if I put myself on the throne and I live life my way, I will be living a life of constantly clawing, grabbing, striving, crawling, grasping to try and find satisfaction for the deep thirst in my soul. And perpetually I'll be like, well, if I just get to that level of success, if I just can be in that relationship, if I get that amount of money, if I live in that neighborhood, if I have that car, constantly trying to find satisfaction for my thirsty soul. And in the end, I stand back and I say, I just still feel so empty and unsatisfied. But if I put the Lord on the throne, it says you're like not a shrub in the desert, you're a tree by a stream. And it says, so when drought comes, did you notice that? It doesn't say no drought's coming. It says, but when drought comes, you're not afraid. You keep thriving. You keep bearing fruit. You keep having green leaves. Why? Because you are planted right by a stream of water, constant nourishment. And that makes logical sense, by the way. Why would I entrust the most precious thing, my life? I only have one life. Why would I entrust the most precious thing to someone that makes a really bad God? Me. I do not make a good God. Why would I put myself on the throne? I am above anyone else aware of my flaws, my faults, the areas I, I get things wrong all the time. Doesn't it make logical sense if I put myself on the throne, I'm leading towards hurt? Doesn't it make more logical sense to put Almighty God, the inventor of everything, and say, how about you run my life since you invented life? Since you're the author of life, doesn't it make sense that when he's on the throne and I align my life to the author of life, that everything will be thriving? I'll even thrive in the midst of heat and drought? He's warning of, of the path, those two paths. And here's the thing, we said earlier this is the most stated reason, I think, that people say, that's, I don't believe in God because of all the evil and suffering. That's the most stated issue, but I don't think that's the most common real issue as to why people choose not to believe in God. I think the number one real issue is if there's a God, then there's someone that holds me accountable and I have to put him on the throne and I want to stay on the throne. Let me read you one quote from a well-known atheist in the early 20th century, Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World. In another book, he wrote this. I thought it was a really interesting, kind of honest statement. Look what he said. Outspoken atheist. He put it like this. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was liberation from a certain system of morality. Listen, we objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. I, I admire his, his candor and his honesty. That's a lot of self-awareness. He said, honestly, I'm not purely an atheist for logical reasons. I want to be an atheist. I don't want there to be a God. I want this all to be a meaningless accident because then I am liberated to do whatever I want. 
And I think that's the number one reason that so often people choose to want, that's the heart reason. I don't want to put someone else in thorn. I don't want to surrender. But God warns the path is to the desert. Put the rightful God in his rightful place. But then look what it says in verse nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately, what's that word? Desperately sick. Who can understand it? This passage in the beginning and here in verse nine, it tells us something interesting about evil. It tells us where, where it's located. It's, evil is not this force just floating around in the atmosphere. Evil's in our hearts, engraved in our hearts, diseasing our hearts. Our hearts, every one of us, is infected with sin, <laughs> selfishness, pride, greed. Our hearts are, are, are infected with that. So here's the question. God, we know you're good so you oppose evil. We know you're powerful so you can eradicate evil. Why don't you just snap your fingers and remove all of evil? What possible good reason could you have for allowing evil to continue? Can God snap his fingers and get rid of evil? Absolutely. But if evil is in our hearts, if that's where it's located, then what does it mean when he snaps his fingers? He destroys us too. What's the good reason he allows evil? He loves you. It's, it's diseased your heart and my heart. It, listen to what Jesus says about evil. What, where's all the evil in the world coming from? Listen to what, this is Jesus' words. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Why does God not just instantaneously remove evil? Because it would mean removing you and he loves you too much. So then what is, but he opposes evil, so what is God's plan? Does he have some kind of plan? He does. One last verse out of Jeremiah 17. Look at verse 14. This is Jeremiah's cry. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. What is God's plan for removing evil? He looks down on all of us who have sin-sickened hearts and need to be saved, and his plan for removing evil is to send a Savior. God himself enters into creation, the creator entering into creation, God in the flesh, Jesus. The only man who was perfectly good, had no sin in his heart, and taught the world that evil is within, it's not just external, and the world hated him for it and plotted to kill him. But you can't kill the author of life. He surrendered himself to die. Surrendered himself to an unjust trial and accusations. Surrendered himself to be beaten, to be whipped, and to be nailed to a cross and crucified. And he died on the cross and they buried him. But if he's the author of life, he can defeat death. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. What was he doing? 
If he has no sin, then he can be a sacrifice for someone else. He could be a substitute for someone else. But if it's not just that he's sinless, if he's an infinite being, then there's no limit to the number of humans he can be the substitute sacrifice for. And so he dies on the the perfect lamb of God, dies on the cross to pay for your sins and my sins so that if any of us cry out to Jesus, like Jeremiah says, I need to be saved by you, Jesus. I need to be washed clean. I need to be forgiven. He will wash our sins away. He He will forgive us. We will enter into this forgiveness by God, reconnected to God. And then here's what he does. Because we're washed clean, God sends his his presence. It's called the Holy Spirit. Comes into our hearts and he starts healing our sin-sick hearts. Some of you have experienced this. You said, before I knew Jesus... Man, I remember what it was like to be like that shrub in the desert. I remember having all these things that I was walking through and struggling through, all these these bad habits I couldn't break and all these these things I didn't want to do, but I was doing them, and I just felt like I was chained down, yoked down. I just didn't want to be living this life, and I was not satisfied. And then you say, and then I met Jesus, and I put my faith in Jesus. It was like he just injected me with life. And I felt alive, I felt born again, I felt like I was a brand new creation. And and you said, and I watched him start to change my heart. He started to change me from the inside out. And you'd say, I'm not perfect, but I've seen how far he's brought me. So here's the last thing I want you to write down. God's rescue mission to save the world from evil is Jesus Christ. Perfectly good God loves us and he's curing the world from the evil in our hearts through the work of Jesus Christ and the good news that he's curing our hearts. Christian, can I encourage you today? Do you know what the incredible thing is? He's invited you to be a part of the rescue mission. He's invited you in. I heard one pastor put it like this once. He said, so often we look at God and we say, God, why is there so much suffering and evil in this world? And the pastor said, you know, God could ask the church the same question. Church, he's left us here to advance, to be on his rescue mission so that these, so lost souls that are in the desert like we once were can be found and their souls, their sick souls can be healed like he's in the process of healing our souls. Join his rescue mission. You know, church, every time you invite someone into church, you're part of his rescue mission. Every time you take uh, an invite card and you just very simply say uh, to one of your friends or family members, hey, you know, our church is studying this. Why don't, you, uh, why don't you come with me? No pressure, but I'd love for you to come. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe I will. Okay, and you pull out of your wallet or your purse or your car. Hey, here's an invite card. Just come. No pressure. But I'd love to. I'll, I'll sit with you. Maybe we'll go get coffee afterwards. You know, every time you do that, you're part of God's rescue mission. You know, every time you do something simple, like you repost on social media something that your church is posting, and you you leverage your influence on social media to get that word out, you know, you are part of God's rescue mission. You know, those of you getting baptized in a couple weeks, when you leverage that opportunity to invite friends and family so they can see that declaration, you know, when you invite in, you're part of God's rescue mission. Why? Because when you invite in here, People are finding finally what their souls are searching for, their creator. They're hearing the gospel. 
You're part of God's rescue mission. Do you know every time you give financially to your church, you are investing in the army, the local army that is reaching out in the city, taking the message that our sickened souls are so desperate to need. And beyond that, as a church, we are funding other agencies in this city and beyond to get God's rescue mission. Every time you do that, you're in, you are part of God's rescue mission. Do you know every time you serve at your church, you serve with those, the, our, our sweet children in the kids' ministry or with our students or in the parking lot or in the coffee team, every time you serve, you are advancing God's rescue mission. Do you know every time you serve out in your community, and you're the presence of Jesus out in the community representing Jesus, you're part of God's rescue mission. Do you realize every time you go to work and you say, I'm not just an employee here, I am a missionary into this setting, and you say, I'm gonna be like the, like the Bible says, the fragrance of Christ here, and I'm gonna share my faith any chance I get, share the message of the gospel, share how I've been impacted. Every time you show an act of kindness or love or you, or you stand for justice or righteousness and you're the fragrance, the representative of Christ in that place of work or in that neighborhood or in that friend group, you are part of God's rescue mission. Christian, don't miss out on the incredible opportunity we have to be drawn into the rescue mission that God is on to heal our city and our world. I want to leave you with this scripture. It's in Revelation chapter 5. And I'll leave you with this idea, you know, so often we say, you know, yeah, but is God really working? I mean, I just look around at what's happening. Maybe you say, I look around at what's happening in my family or at my work or my life or I see what's happening in, my, in our city or in our community or in our, our, our country or in our world. I mean, it just doesn't seem like, when's God gonna make it all okay? And I just wanna read this over you. There's this description in Revelation 5 and it's describing God sitting on the throne and he's holding a scroll and it says there's seven seals. You know, like those wax seals are on the scroll. And what is this imagery of the scroll? The scroll is God's plan for how he is gonna make everything okay in the end. What is his plan to redeem all of creation? And John is seeing this as a, as a vision and here's what he describes in Revelation 5 and let me just encourage you with this. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Christian, can I encourage you today? That it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter what you see in this community, what you see in this city, what you see in this society. There is no place for you, Christian, to have hopelessness or fatalism. There's no place for that because you know who holds the plan for all of creation and the redemption of all creation. You know who will right all injustice, who will eradicate all evil. You know who will ensure that good will win. He's holding the scroll in his hands. 
Christian, do you know who it is that will open that scroll and, and enact and ensure that God's plan will roll out through history? It is none, none other than your Savior, the sacrificial lamb, who is also the lion, the roaring, ferocious lion of Judah. And he will ensure that God's plan to bring justice and goodness will be brought about on this earth. Do you believe that today, Christian? He will ensure that that happens because he is worthy to open the scroll. Christian, don't miss your opportunity to run after the lion and be a part of his rescue mission. Some of you are here today and you say, if I'm honest, I'm in the desert place, but I wanna put God on the throne. I'm tired of running my life. I'm ready to put Jesus on the throne and call out to him like Jeremiah did and say, save me. If that's you, I want to give you an opportunity to put your faith in Jesus. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're watching online, go ahead and bow your heads at the Pilot Campus. Just take a moment of prayer. <coughs> if that's you, just pray this prayer simply after me. Just say, silently in your heart, repeat these words to God. Say, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to put you on the throne. I surrender to you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.